All right, well, today is Kai and Mariana's anniversary. They got married a year ago today, so praise the Lord for that. Didn't want to embarrass them, but I'm sure they're not embarrassed. Well, today's an exciting day because we begin a brand new book in the Bible. We believe in teaching through books of the Bible here, so I don't get on my little hobby horse and teach only what I want to teach. So we go through books of the Bible to make sure that we... Um, teach what God has desired us to teach. And so we're going to be in a brand new book. We're going to kind of continue from 1 Thessalonians, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be moving into 2 Thessalonians. So if you find in your Bibles 2 Thessalonians, we'll be referring to that, and we're actually going to read through the entire letter this morning. It's only three chapters, so don't get worried. But uh, we're just doing an introduction today, and next week we'll come back and uh, have part two of this message. I, I entitled this message a template for a healthy church, a template for a healthy church. What does it mean to have a healthy church? There's a shortage in this area, in this department, in, especially in our area of the country. There's a shortage of healthy churches. But I would not only say in our area, but in other areas. I know when people move out of the Bay Area, they move away from our church. They're always sad to go, and we're sad to see them go. But inevitably, before they move, when they know where they're going, they'll email me, they'll call me, they'll text me, hey, pastor, can you find us a good church in whatever location? And I try to do my best. But unfortunately, sadly, I am often hard-pressed to endorse a church because I start listening to their messages and I start looking at what they're doing and I'm like, wow, this isn't really biblical. And sometimes I have to tell them, you know, this is the best I got. <laughs> they do teach from the Bible, so, you know, God bless you. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it there. But you can't really endorse a lot of churches. There's a lot of churches out there that tend to be abusive churches. Their leaders are on a ego trip and think they have to control everybody. There's a lot of legalistic churches. You know, you can't walk in the door unless you have a tie on and your hair is over your ears and women have dresses and all this crazy stuff. There's a lot of dead churches. There are churches that just have no life at all in them. And there's also, I would say, shallow churches. You know, um, they preach sermonettes for Christianettes, and that's basically as deep as it goes. And there's a lot of churches that basically just want to make you feel good. You know, the feel-good church. You come and you got a big concert, and you got, you know, fog on the stage, and when you walk out of there, man, that was wonderful, but what did I, I didn't really learn anything, you know? So, you know, we have to pick and choose out of those things, but I think that the most important thing for a church to be is a church that's healthy spiritually, spiritually. And the only way to do that is to teach people the Word of God. That's how we grow in our relationship with Christ. That's how we grow in our faith. That's why we allow for you throughout the week opportunities to come and sit and be taught the Word of God, whether it's on Sunday morning, whether it's on Tuesday morning or Tuesday night with the ladies, whether it's on Wednesday night Bible study, whether it's on Thursday men's study. You know, we allow these opportunities, and they're there, and we pray that you would avail yourself to them. We don't do it just as an exercise, like we don't have anything else to do. I can think of a lot of other things to do rather than come and teach a Bible study. I mean, I, my life's busy just like yours is, but you know what? I understand the importance of it. So it's a priority. It's a priority. And I pray that in 2023, we will make God's Word a priority. 
because solid, healthy churches, let me just say, they, they preach the gospel and they teach God's word. This is where we're focused on. We're not going through some book that somebody wrote. We're going through the word of God. And we're going through it systematically. So I can't skip over a verse and go, that's a little dicey there. I don't understand what that means. I'm just going to skip to the next chapter. People in our church would say, wait a minute, Pastor, you missed a verse. (laughs) Go back there and preach on that one. I can't get away with that here, which is good. And, you know, when I hear about a healthy, solid church that preaches the gospel and teaches God's word, it just brings joy and hope to my heart. And it's, it's wonderful to find churches like that. And I'm not saying we're the only church on the block. I would never say that. There's a lot of good churches even here in the Bay Area. But they're not the majority. That's all my point is. And so we have to be and understand, we have to be thankful and understand that what we have here is a great privilege. That we get to gather every Sunday, every Wednesday for Bible studies throughout the week as the body of Christ. As we come together, we fellowship and we're taught the word of God. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians just a few months after he wrote the first letter. And this is what it is. It's a letter. We call it the book, but it's really a letter. It's meant to be read in in one setting. We forget that sometimes when we go through books of the Bible. These were letters that people opened up on a scroll, and they would read it. And they would read the entire letter. Now, we obviously want to study it, and so we you know, take our time going through the words and the language and understand everything and apply it to ourselves. But this was just a few months after he wrote the first letter. And it's a, it's a few months after this, this church had come into existence. Remember, he was, this church in Thessalonica was, was basically out of a pagan background. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And they were confused over a couple things. They were experiencing trials in their lives, as many of you do. And and let me tell you, I mean, some of you are going through um, hellish trials, I'll say. Use that word. Just horrible trials, okay? And, And I praise God for your perseverance because you understand that those trials are there by the hand of God. You may not enjoy them, but they're there to what? Make you stronger and more dependent and stronger in your faith, more dependent on God. And so here in, in Thessalonica, they were under persecution. That's why Paul and Timothy and Silas had to leave, right? They planted the church. They taught them for probably maybe a month or maybe a month and a half at the most. And then the, the young church said, hey, you guys got to get out of here because they're after you. Because <laughs> they were upset. The Jews in the area were upset. The Gentiles in the area were upset. They didn't want Paul and Timothy and Silas starting this new Christian thing in their town because there was no church there. Can you imagine not having a church where you live? Think, think of living in a place where there's no church. On Sunday morning, you can't go to church because there is no church. That, that would be hard for many of us. But that was their situation. And when Paul and Timothy and Silas went there, they went there really with a heart for the Lord, with a heart for evangelism, because they went into a place where there was no, no, no presence of Christ. And they began to preach, and they saw people get saved, and there they started a church. God started a church, I should say. Um, now, this church was not free of problems. It wasn't a perfect church. Uh, There is no perfect church, as many people say. If you find a perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore because we're not perfect people. 
Okay, and a lot of times they were in this in this church in Thessalonica. They were con, they were not only experiencing persecution, but they were also ex- experiencing some confusion. Remember, they're they're a brand new church, not even a year old in the Lord, and and so they're having to deal with a lot of different pagan teachings that are trying to creep into the church. It's amazing to me how quickly Satan infiltrates a church with false teaching. That's his goal. That's his goal. And that's what he desires to do. He desires that on our church. He desires that on other churches that teach the word of God. And so here in this church, someone had began to influence wrongly, theologically, and Paul had to write them a second letter. They were confused over some of the false teaching regarding the day of the Lord, regarding Christ's return. And they were so confused that some of them thought that it was going to happen right away. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. So, hey, you know what? Hey, boss, I ain't coming in today. Jesus is coming back. So they were quitting their jobs. And then after a couple of weeks would go by, they were getting hungry because they weren't working. And then they started to what? Use the church as, hey, yeah, we need some food. You know, we're not working because the Lord's coming back. So anybody in the church have any food for us? And they started to take advantage of people. And so Paul even has to exhort them because some of them were being lazy church members. They weren't working. They were mooching off of others who were working because they just thought, hey, the Lord's coming back. But in spite of all these problems that they had, and they weren't big problems because this is a template for a healthy church. It really is. Uh, It was a healthy church. They were growing in their faith. As we're going to find out, they were growing in love. They were growing in their endurance under this incredible cloud of persecution. And if you want a simple outline, I think I put one there on the back of your uh, outline where we'll be going. Basically, in in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 1, he kind of opens up with some greetings. And we'll be going into that this week and next. And then he offers some instruction in chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, about thanksgiving and prayer in light of the, the day of the Lord. And then he also closes out chapter 3 with a prayer for the folks, um, especially some instruction regarding these lazy Christians and uh, who weren't working. <clears throat> but in these opening verses, uh, he gives us a, a brief, just a brief sketch um, of a healthy church. And I think it's important to understand that <clears throat> on the back of your outline there, it says a healthy church is distinct from the world, bathed in the grace and peace of the gospel, growing in faith and in love and persevering in trials as it looks to God's kingdom, as it looks to Christ's return. Well, let's give you some background. I know we've been through this before, but maybe some of you are new here, so we want to do our due diligence and give you a little background on the city, first of all, of Thessalonica, or properly pronounced Thessalonica. It's it's the way it's pronounced, so I'll, I'll probably float between those two. And then we're also going to be talking about the church of Thessalonica, which is not, you know, as far as the letter goes, it's not going to be a whole lot different as far as the background from the first time. But let's look a little bit about the city. Thessalonica was located, it's located in modern Greece. It's a very large city. Um, it was called, back in Paul's day, the mother of Macedonia. It was the metropolis in the northern part of that region. And you'll notice that he, he writes here to the church of the Thessalonians. 
It's a church. Um, it's not a Bible study. It's not a care group. It's a church. And he founds this church in this city, which is the northern part of, of Macedonia. And the, the main city in the south, you remember, uh, of what we know today as Greece, would be Corinth. And the main city to the north was this city, Thessalonica. And probably about over 200,000, some say 250,000, um, about a quarter of a million people lived there. So this was not a small city by any means. It's not a small town. Uh, it's a metropolis in the northern part of this region. And in Paul's day, it was considered a, a huge city. Uh, the first century A.D., originally it was called Thermos, remember, because it had hot springs there. And even driving back from Idaho, Idaho, it was called Therma. It, coming back from Idaho on Highway 80, at some point, I can't remember where it is, but um, there's hot springs. And you look out, and you know, it's a cold day, and you see the hot springs. I was tempted to stop, but you know, there's a fence there and everything, so that'd be kind of crazy. But, you know, eh, nothing like a good spa, right? Uh, jacuzzi. Um, but you could see the steam coming out, and I thought of this. Uh, this is what was there in this region. And it was originally called Therma. But then Alexander the Great uh, named it after his half-sister. And her name was, was Thessaloniki. And so it was called Thessalonica. And, and so today it's called Salonica. And it's a modern city. It's well over 300,000 people. It still exists there today. Uh, but it was a seaport on the Aegean Sea. And it was also a place where the river flowed into the port. So it had a lot of maritime stuff going on. It would be like San Francisco Bay, right? You have ships all over the place. Boats and fishing ships and big freighters, all kinds of things. And so it was populated mainly by traders and sailors. And if you've been around sailors for any amount of time, you know what sailors are like and what they do. Usually not good things. Um, it was also the route of the Ignatian Highway, one of the, the major uh, east-west trade routes. So it was, it's, it's not a little town. It was a very busy, bustling kind of city. And it brought together an eclectic group of people. You had people who were passing through and, 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 and all that kind of stuff, business people, sailors. But you also had people that lived there, and, and most of them were Gentile. There was, was a, a Jewish presence there, but it was mostly Gentile, and they were entirely pagan. There was no mention of Christ in this city before Paul got there. Uh, it was a place of vice. You could say it's kind of like you know, San Francisco or L.A. It's a place of crime. It's, it's a place where murder was common. Uh, prostitution was rampant. It was very well organized in this city. Uh, historians tell us that obscene pictures were painted even on the, the walls of houses as you go through neighborhoods. They just paint obscene pictures, nude people and all kinds of weird illustrations. And people had to bar their doors and their windows because of the crime. It, it was a tough town because it was a trade town. And, and we understand that. And that's where Paul went. You know, he didn't go to the easy place where there's a bunch of Christians. And sometimes I wonder, God, why did you bring me to the Bay Area? I mean, of all the places to pastor a church, let alone a conservative Bible teaching church, 
that is opposed to everything culturally that we see going on today. God, why did you bring me here? I mean, it'd be so much easier to pastor a church in Georgia or Florida or even Pennsylvania for that matter. But no, God has a purpose. He has a purpose for our small little church here. And that purpose is to shed the light of Christ to a dark and sinful, lost society. He's left us here with a purpose. And and we can't lose sight of that. And so that's where Paul went. He went to the darkest place really he could find in that region. A little bit about this church. It was founded by Paul around 51, 52 AD. We're not really sure exactly when. Acts 17 and 18, if you want to read about that, you can read about that in Acts 17 and 18. It tells you the whole story, how they founded it and how they got kicked out and and persecuted, all this stuff. And it was on a second missionary journey there. Um, And he was only there, like I said, for maybe a month, um, three Sabbaths, a month, something like that. But he birthed this very young church, and then he had to leave. And can you imagine if he just led one person to Christ, and then they were leaving the next day? There'd be so much stuff you'd want to tell them, so much stuff you'd want to teach them, right? As your disciples, you know, they came to Christ, maybe under your teaching, whatever. You'd want to share everything you know with that. That's what discipleship is, finding somebody that doesn't know as much as you and sharing it with them helping them grow in the relationship with the Lord. You wouldn't want them to move away that quickly, but that's what happened. And so Paul was broken, probably heartbroken, that they had to leave, but in God's providence, he provided a way out of there so they wouldn't get killed because God had more things for Paul and Timothy and Silas to do, and so they, they moved on. And he, about a, a, a year later, he's writing this letter giving them more instruction. And like I said, it was a mixed population of Gentile and Jewish people there. And I'm sure that was the makeup of the church as well. And, and uh, he, he wanted them to know about uh, the gospel. He wanted them to know about Christ. And uh, God used him to plant this wonderful, strong church there. Um, he was very concerned how they were doing because he wasn't with them. And, and so he sent Timothy, the young guy, hey, you go back there to where we got kicked out, we were persecuted, you know, you go back and you find out how they're doing. And so that's what Timothy did. And Timothy brought back a report and he said basically, hey, they're doing, they're doing wonderful, they're doing incredibly well. And so Paul wrote these letters in response to Timothy's visit. And so The second letter of Thessalonians, we've gone through the first letter. The second letter, he was, Paul was still in Corinth at the time of this writing, um, just a few months after he wrote the first letter. And so it's still 52, 53 AD. And here in the very first verse, he tells us who's with him, Paul and Silvanus or Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, Paul is the author. It doesn't mean the three people wrote this book. Paul is the author, but he had his two fellow missionary companions along with him. Silas, or Silvanus, some translations read, and Timothy. Uh, they're, they're with Paul, and so he includes them, which would be rude not to include them. It'd be like coming to, your, to visit your house, and I have three people with me, and I say, hi, you know, hey, can I come in? And I never in- introduce you to these people. That would just be rude. 
right? I've probably done that at times, so sorry if I have. But I'm just saying, because usually I'm not really tuned into that kind of stuff. But um, that would be rude to do that. And so Paul didn't want to be rude, so he includes them in the opening greeting through Paul, him, uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, even though Paul is the only author. He is the apostle. But you notice here, he doesn't claim his apostleship. He doesn't say Paul the apostle as he does in other letters. And you say, well, I wonder why he doesn't do that. Because I don't think they were challenging his apostleship here within the church. Now, you remember back in 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 2, he does have to defend himself as an apostle, but that's against the people who are attacking the church from the outside. There was no issues with Paul being an apostle within the, the church at Thessalonica. And so he didn't have to bring that up. He didn't parade it like a title, you know. Um, sometimes it's weird, you know, people will come to our church, they'll visit our church, and they'll say, you know, I'll say, hey, I'm, I'm Steve, you know, what's your name? And, oh, and then, oh, you're the pastor. Yeah. What should I call you? What do you mean? Call me Steve. You can call me the janitor. I don't care what you call me. It's not important. (laughs) You know, it's really not. And and when it is important, you got an issue there. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, Pastor Steve, that's, that's fine. That's respectful. But I don't expect that. And Paul doesn't expect that. He doesn't need that. And, and so he doesn't say, Paul, an apostle, called by God, a servant. of No, he just says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. We're here to help you guys. And uh, he, he apparently had no questions about his authority here. And so this letter is not, it's, it's a letter that's flavored with love, with grace, with compassion. He, he, he really is concerned with them, but he's not writing them in an authoritative, like, exhortation, you guys are doing wrong, you know, as in other letters, when he, like, you read the book of Corinthians, when we went through that book, you remember that? Several times, I mean, he had to address things that, whoa, any pastor would have a nightmare if they had to address the things Paul had to address in the church of Corinth, but he did it with authority, and he always said, hey, I'm an apostle, and I, but here he doesn't need to do that. It's more of a friendly, kind of loving, intimate tone that he has to this letter. He's not relying on his apostolic authority, but he really wants them to understand that he is, he wants to love them intimately. He wants to encourage them. And remember, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are in Corinth when this is being written, and they've been there for some time now. And uh, this is a couple months after he wrote the first letter. And um, he says there, Paul, we know who that is, and then Silvanus or Silas. Silas, some translations say Silas. Silas is his Jewish name. Okay, a lot of times they'd have two different names. Uh, Silvanus is his Roman name. So whether your Bible says Silvanus or, or Silas, it's the same person. And he was basically a lot more senior than Timothy. Timothy was just a little young guy, brand new. He's like a new guy to the ministry. But, but Silas, Silvanus was established. He was a lot older than Timothy. He was probably closer to the age of Paul, commentaries tell us. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, this guy Silas, he's called a chief among the brethren, a leader. So this guy was making an impact spiritually on people's lives. In Acts chapter 15, verse 32, he's called a prophet. So apparently he had the ability to teach the word of God. 
And in Acts 16, it tells us that he was a Jew, just like Paul was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen, just like Paul was a Roman citizen. So you could see where they would just kind of have this, you know, they would be connected at the hip. They, well, we just get along great. And they would do ministry together. And uh, he's a very familiar friend of Paul, and he was with him in some very uh, difficult and dire circumstances. As a matter of fact, he was with him when he was in jail in Philippi. And so Silas was his co-minister, his companion. And then he lists Timothy there, and we know Timothy is that young man that Paul had met in Acts 16. And he's moving along with him, and he's Paul's companion. He's Paul's, the Bible calls, son in the faith. And so apparently maybe he came to Christ under Paul's teaching. That indicates that. And so he was training Timothy to take the mantle of this ministry, trying to do everything he can to give Timothy everything he needed to minister to the people. And so here, the three were together in Corinth, and uh, they were together when they founded the church. Now they're here in Corinth, and they're wondering how this church is, is doing. And we don't know who brought back a report after the first time Timothy went back. It doesn't say Timothy went back. So somebody must have brought a report back to Paul about this young church in Thessalonica after he wrote the first letter. We just don't have any information on that, none at all. So it, it could have been somebody from the church was traveling and they said, oh yeah, the church is doing this or they're having some struggles here. And so he, he wants to respond to them. We don't know where the report came from. We don't know its source. But obviously, he's heard further word and further word about this church. It prompts him to write a second letter, uh, which is, is wonderful to them. Now, the main theme of this letter, just like really the main theme of 1 Thessalonians was, it's all about what? It's about the second coming of Christ. It's about the second coming of the king. It's, that, that's what it's about. It's, it's, it's about Christ returning. Now, remember, the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians, we saw this, is kind of broken up. It's, you, can, you can see it in two segments, and we'll get into this later. I'll just talk about it right now. But, you know, you have the rapture of the church. You have a time when Christ comes back into the clouds, the Bible says, and we are caught up to be with the Lord. The church is caught up. Those who know Jesus Christ will be caught up one day. We will just be glorified instantly. And we will be taken up to be with our Lord forevermore. But then it also refers to the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes back with the angels and, by the way, with his church, we'll be with him. And he's going to come back and his feet will be on the Mount of Olives and, and all the good stuff happens. Okay? So that's, that's what this letter is about. And, and we're going to notice even here in chapter 2 in particular, he spends a lot of time talking about the Antichrist. Now, some of your ear just picked up, oh, he's going to talk about the Antichrist. Yeah. I don't know why we get so excited when people mention the Antichrist. I'd much rather talk about Christ, not the Antichrist, right? So that's what we're going to do. The first chapter kind of deals with our relationship with Christ and all that, so we're going to hit that first. But we are going to talk about the Antichrist when we get to chapter 2. And this is one of the most lengthy sections in the New Testament as it relates to the Antichrist. So if you have questions about the Antichrist, write them down. Hopefully we'll go over them. If, if you don't get them answered in our messages, send me a text or an email, whatever, and we'll try to answer your questions. But when we get to chapter 2, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Antichrist. But 
Here's the main purpose as an overview of why he wrote this second letter. This is it. He wrote it a couple months after the first, but he, he really wants uh, them to know and understand the return of Christ because they were a little mixed up. There was a lot of tribulation. There was a lot of persecution going on in the church. And some of the Christians there thought, you know what? This is it. This is the great tribulation. Oh, no. Maybe we missed the rapture. Maybe we missed the second coming of Christ. And then people on the other side were saying, oh, no, no, no. He's coming tomorrow. He's coming tomorrow. Don't do anything. Just be lazy. Um, they were quitting their jobs and just, you know, checking out and filling up on Twinkies. I don't know. You know, but they were just, just relaxing, saying, oh, the Lord's coming back. Why do anything? And, and sometimes you can get that flavor, even in our church sometimes, you hear people, you know, they just long for, oh, I just wish Jesus would come back right now. Well, yeah, that's true. We all want that to happen. The Bible says that we should look for the coming of the Lord, right? Come even now, Lord Jesus. Um, but at the same time, I know a lot of people that I'd like to see saved first, <laughs> So I think the church, rather than just sitting back and twiddling their thumbs and saying, oh, well, why even do anything? You know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. We're just going to come and have church. No, there's a lost and dying world out there that needs to hear the gospel, that needs to hear that they can be saved from their sin if they would just turn, look to Christ, rather than trying to fix it themselves. If they would just look to Christ, if they would put their faith, their trust, rather than in themselves, say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need forgiveness. Forgive me. I'm, I'm coming to you. Be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. That's a prayer that God will answer when you pray it from a sincere heart, when you really mean it. And when you really mean it, you're willing to leave everything behind. You're walking away from a lot of stuff to come to Christ. It's not something that, you know, salvation isn't adding Jesus to your life. A lot of people think that. Well, I'll just add Jesus. Uh, I think it was John MacArthur told a story. He, he prayed with a guy after a Bible study one Wednesday or something, and the guy wanted to accept Christ. He wanted to come to Christ. So, so the guy prayed and everything, and he wanted to be baptized and all this stuff. And, and after John, Pastor John was done praying with him, the man said, oh, that's great. Now I got all the bases covered because <laughs> I'm also a Muslim. And I'm also, well, wait a minute. No, that's not true salvation. Okay, you don't just add Jesus to your life. And so Paul is going to write this letter, and he's, he's coming along to correct this, this false uh, prophecy that's been floating around. Uh, apparently someone had stolen Paul's identity, to put it in modern terms. And they wrote this church a letter, and they said, hey, you know what? This is from the Apostle Paul. Guess what? The rapture already happened. The second coming of Christ already happened. You guys are in big trouble because there's persecution. You're, you're the great tribulation. All this stuff. And so they started getting worried. They're a brand new church. They're young believers. And apparently, we don't know who it was, but it's maybe somebody, you know, uh, pretended to be Paul. And uh, he had to clarify that as well. He was informing them, hey, this is not my letter. If you, matter of fact, turn over to chapter 2 real quick. We're going to read the whole letter this morning, but I just want to look at verses 1 to 3. He says there, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is that? That's the second coming he's referring to. And then he says, and are being gathered together to him. What is that? I believe that's the rapture. As we ask you, brothers, verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Well, why would they 
be, well, he t- explains it, either by, listen, a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. See, that's why I say somebody stole their identity. They wrote them a letter with deceptive teaching and it's saying, oh, this is from the Apostle Paul. Just put Paul's name on it. They'll believe anything. And it says, to, that of, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, you missed, missed the boat. Verse 3, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. See, he, he's going to go on later in the chapter 2. We're not going to read it right now, but there's a couple of things that have to happen first before Christ is going to come again in the second coming. We believe the rapture of the church is imminent. That can happen any time. But there are certain things that have to happen before Christ returns to earth, prophetically. And he's going to go over those things. As a matter of fact, those things still have to happen today before Christ can literally return to the earth. We can be raptured at any moment. We don't know when that time is happening. And so he wants to reassure the people here in Thessalonica that, hey, listen, you haven't missed the second coming. And, uh, you know, he wants them to understand that there's this tremendous persecution that they're going through and they're suffering um, but you know what? You haven't missed it. God is still there. He, he will still get you through this. So now the early church is persecuted. They went through all this hardship. And particularly back in that day, you know, you had uh, people like Emperor Nero. Not a nice guy. Not a nice guy toward Christians. I mean, he was a very uh, depraved individual. Uh, he was basically... Uh, he, well, for example, he burned Rome to the ground, and then he, what did he do? He blamed it on the Christians as the fall people, fall guy. In addition to that, he would persecute Christians. And one of the ways that he would persecute Christians, he would literally take a living Christian, he would dip them in oil and tar, and then impale them on a stick and light them so that he could have his garden parties. Sick individual, right? Just disgusting. Human torches in his for his garden parties. Now that's Nero. That's first century. And, and by the way, it's Nero who will eventually behead Paul. So this is not, uh, this is what's coming. In addition to that, um, you know, he, he, he just didn't, didn't like Christians at all. But this is what Paul had to deal with. You know, we have our political people we deal with today. Well, they, they were no different back then. You know, and so Paul's come along and he's saying Christ is coming again, but this isn't the great tribulation for you church here in Thessalonica. This is not the great tribulation. I know that somebody wrote a letter saying that I wrote it and told you that you were in the great tribulation. No, that's not the case. And so he's, he's saying, hey, this is not the great tribulation. So you, I know you're going through some suffering. You're going through hardships. You're going through persecution, no doubt about it. But this is not yet the second coming of Christ. You haven't missed the boat. There's a few things that have to happen before Christ returns. And that's what we're going to be studying as we go through this letter. It's a book that's rich in biblical prophecy. If you like prophecy, you're going to like this study. So I pray that you hang in there with us. It relates to the second coming of Christ. Um, he's even going to warn them in chapter 3, and I mentioned this, don't get lazy. You know, don't get lazy. You know, Jesus is coming back. Don't get lazy about that. Well, in this introduction, let's just read. I'm going to read for you the Word of God 
And this is probably the best part of the sermon because it is the word of God. Okay, it's not my words. Second Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 1. And you can just follow along in your Bibles. There's one there in the, the uh, chair around you if you need one. You can find it, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or by a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it 
will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception from those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us either by our spoken word or our letter. Verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Chapter 3, Finally, brothers, he wraps it up, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wickedness and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. And here's the command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. <laughs> Verse 12, no such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work. Now, such persons we command in and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey 
what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, writing this greeting with my own hand, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you, Lord, that Paul was moved by the Spirit to write this letter to this young church. And Lord, we can apply it to our own lives as well. And Father, that's what we look forward to doing in the coming weeks. But Lord, as we just share a couple points here this morning, pray that you would open our hearts, remove any clutter, help our minds to be active and clear. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts right off here and he gives a greeting and we we said that, but let's just take a brief time and just maybe 10 minutes here and we'll uh, cover a couple points. Um, First of all, we said in our opening statement, a healthy church is distinct from the world. It's distinct from the world. What does that mean? It doesn't blend in with the world. Probably a majority of the churches today are trying to relate to the culture. They're trying to blend in. They're, they're literally bringing the world into the church. Um, whether it's through the idea of being user-friendly and, and, you know, I think their hearts are right. They want to be evangelistic. But um, as I said before, the time here on Sunday morning, the first and foremost thing is not evangelism. It's what? It's edification. We gather together as believers to be taught the word of God, to worship God in spirit and truth. The last time I checked, an unbeliever can't do that. An unbeliever is unable to even receive things from the word of God because it says the natural man can't understand it. This is not just another book that you know, we stand up and make some comments on. It's a supernatural book. It's the very literally the word of God. And it, has, and it has had an incredible impact on people's lives throughout the centuries. Many people in this room have been impacted by the words of this book for the good. Your lives have been changed. You've committed your lives to Christ. You've committed your lives to be lives of service to Christ. Why? Because of Sometimes, somewhere in your life, someone shared with you the very word of God from this book. We have to remember that. Um, that this is, it's, it's different from the way the world does things. The church doesn't operate like the world. And he, he points out here, you know, very clearly here, he's referring to their relationship to God as a church. The word church, ecclesia, ek meaning out, Lysia speaks of, of being called, okay? So called out ones, that's literally what the word church means. It means called out ones. 
How are we called out? Well, we're called out through the gospel. God has called his people out of the world to be distinct from the world, to be distinct from the world's values, to be distinct from the world's morals, to be distinct from the world's goals, to be distinct from the way the world operates. We're not to be like them. If you turn over to John chapter 17, we see this. Uh, In John chapter 17, Jesus himself, he's praying. And he's, he's, he's praying to the Father. And he says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Because they are not, what? Of the world. They are not of the world. Even, he says, as I am not of the world... And then he says something curious. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Some of you have said, I wish you would ask that. Can you imagine that? Think if the moment you got saved, you're gone. You just get your glorified body and you go to heaven. I mean, that would be motivation for people to get saved right there, right? You see people popping off all over the place. Wow, what happened? Well, they committed their life to Christ. They're gone. They're no more here. That would be incredible. It doesn't happen that way. So he says, hey, I didn't pray that you take them out of the world. But to what? Keep them from the evil one. Protect them. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Well, what is the truth? Your word is truth. See, there's no place for a Christian to deviate on this. You know, I've run into some believers that say, well, you know, I believe most of the Bible, but there's some of the Bible I just have a hard time with. I don't believe that part. You can't do that. That means you're not a Christian, frankly. Because what part, who, who makes you God to say what's true and what's not? God's word is truth. Jesus said so. And he said, sanctify them, sanctify, set apart them in the truth. So the church is in the world, but it's not what? Of the world. Just as Jesus was in the world, but not of it. The main thing that sets us apart, that sanctifies us, that's what that word means, from the world is that we have God's truth. We have God's truth. God's word tells us how he wants us as his people to live in a holy way. He wants us to be different. In some portions, Peter, he he refers to us as what? Peculiar people. You know, that's not really a flattering term. If you meet somebody, you go, well, you're kind of peculiar. You know, that, you, I don't think the person will go, well, what do you, you know, well, thank you so much for that compliment. No, they say, what do you mean by that, right? That'd be kind of a questionable thing. But that's what we're called. We're called peculiar people. We're to be distinct from the world in our values. The world's values of simple things like accumulating wealth. As if this world is all that there is. It's very easy to fall into that. But what does the Bible say? No, in Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, no, you know what? The church is to to lay up treasures in heaven as we seek first, what? God's kingdom and his righteousness. The world has moral standards that you could say are relative, right? It depends on who you ask. Is this wrong? Is this right? I mean, people respond differently. The world says, you know what, it's okay if, if you want to get married, just try it out first, live together for a couple years, and then get married just to make sure it's going to work. 
now. That's the worst thing you could do. And the funny thing is now even secular people are saying, yeah, you know what? The statistics show that people that live together before they get married, (laughs) far more divorced than people who don't. And the Word of God forbids that. It says, no, there's such a thing as marriage. If you love another person and you want to spend the rest of your life with them, then you marry that person. I want to be specific. A man would marry a woman. And a woman would marry a man. Just, just to make sure we're on the same page. Because in this world, you don't know. You just don't know. Because everything's relative. And what happens, it, it shifts with the time, with the culture, with the politics. Everything shifts. You know, 20 years ago, it was wrong to run down a street and smash out windows and burn cars and everything. But a couple years ago, we saw it happen, and everybody applauded it. So it's like, it's kind of crazy, right? I mean, you wouldn't think we would get to this point. There's this tolerance for every kind of behavior, no matter how morally perverse it is. This is what the world's chief value is. They are. The world asks the question, why believe in the morals taught in this ancient book called the Bible? Why do you follow the Bible? And we answer, we believe it because Jesus believed it and it's God's word and God's word is what? It's truth. It's true. It's authentic. So we have to be understanding that a healthy church is distinct from the world. It's set apart. Secondly, and we'll close with this one, a healthy church is bathed. It's bathed in the grace and the peace of the gospel. This is, this is just beautiful. He says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Although this is a typical greeting from Paul, as with all the greetings, the salutations, it kind of, it's become more of a routine. We read these things at the beginning of every letter that he writes. Um, Paul does not mention or spell out really the gospel here. But it, it, it permeates this greeting. You can see it. Um, the gospel which Paul preached included, guess what? The deity of Jesus Christ. It included the deity of Christ. The fact that he could mention the Lord Jesus Christ right next to God the Father shows you he, he's putting them on an equal plane. He doesn't give an explanation. He doesn't say, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus is God, just to remind you, no. He taught them well when he was with them. He knew that they didn't have an issue with that. It shows that he had taught these former pagans that Jesus was fully God. And as we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, he also taught them about the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Christian faith is undoubtedly Trinitarian. One sure mark of a false cult, just to give you this information, ask them what they believe about the Trinity. If they say they don't believe the Trinity, don't go near them. Don't go near them. There's one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so here he refers to their resources from God. 
their resources. Before he referred to the relationship to God as the church. Now he's referring to their resources. He extends grace and peace to this new group of believers from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace, we know this, but we have to go over it. Grace is God's unmerited favor shown to us in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Grace means that God bestows all the, all the blessings of salvation, you could say, all eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, getting that complete, restored, right standing with him. Grace means that he gives all that as a free gift to us. Even though we deserve his wrath. He says, I know you deserve my wrath, but you know what? I'm going to give you a gift that you don't deserve. I'm going to give you forgiveness. We can't do anything to merit it. We can't do anything to earn it. Joining the church doesn't get you more of God's grace. Being baptized doesn't get you more of God's grace. Giving money in the offering doesn't get you God's grace. All we can do with God's grace is what? Receive it. Receive it. Receive it. And sometimes that's hard. I don't know why, but it is. And you've just gone through Christmas, right? So you've probably experienced this at some point. You give someone a gift. And, oh, no, I couldn't. Oh, no, please, no. Oh, no, that's way too much. You know, and they petition and petition against it. Eventually, they end up taking it, right? But I'm just saying, there, there's something within us that just doesn't like, you know, just free stuff. And yet we do, right? We'll, we'll drive halfway across the town to buy something that's, you know, 15 cents cheaper, even though it costs us twice the amount of gas to get there. Kind of ridiculous. I mean, we have that built into us, but when someone tries to give us something free, what do we do? We step back and go, what's your motive? Where are you coming from with this? What kind of God is this that would give us salvation and not make us work for it? It's a loving, compassionate, gracious God who loves us so much that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in our place. He just didn't die on any cross. He died in a cross in our place, a substitutionary death for us. Paul calls it in Romans 3.24, we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's no other way to get God's grace. There's, there's no, you know, it's, it's, when you think of Christianity, think of it this way, in relationship to the other world religions. Most of the other world religions would say what? Oh, there's many roads. Sure, you know, you can, you can be Hindu, you can be Muslim, you can be Christian, you can be Jewish. You can, any, it's only Jesus stands up and says, no, no, time out. One way, one way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Very exclusionary. Grace. God's Grace. Unmerited favor. All you have to do is receive it. Secondly, peace refers here to total well-being. It's interesting because grace, charis, in the Greek, a lot of times that's how the Gentiles would greet each other. Hey, grace to you. And then he says peace. And you know in the Jewish culture, that's how they greet each other, right? Shalom. 
Now, it's not the word shalom here in the Greek, obviously, because shalom is Hebrew. But it's, it's, it's similar, same idea. But it refers to a total well-being, especially the spiritual well-being that comes from being reconciled to God through Christ. The idea that he shed his blood to pay for the penalty of our sins, because when there's sin involved, there's, there's always a penalty. There's always a cost. The Bible says that the soul that sins will die. That's the cost. And so he shed the blood of Christ. He paid the penalty for our sins. And when we put our faith, our trust in Christ as our Savior, we have now peace with God. Before there's enmity with God. We sang the song, what? Friend of God. Well, we weren't always his friend. Right? At one point, we were sinners. And we deserved his wrath. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but I pray that you would desire God's grace, that you would desire God's peace. Because this God is a loving God. Look around. He created everything you see around you for your enjoyment and for your pleasure. He gave you a mind to think and eyes to see and nose to smell. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's not. But it is what it is. Ears to hear, hopefully. Touch, feeling, all this stuff. God has created you this way. Why? Because he loves you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to bridge over that, that, that sinful gap that's there now because of our sin. And the only way to do that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to Christ and you know that your sins are completely forgiven by God's grace and that he gives you this inner peace in the midst of life's trials, you know all that comes through the gospel we enter into that relationship with God our Father. Like the father of the prodigal son in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. The heavenly father is full of love and forgiveness. And when we repent and we return to him, he is what? Compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so the gospel calls us to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, to trust him to forgive our sins. He bought us with his blood. We are his servants. We are his slaves, you could say. And so a healthy church is distinct from the world, but it's also bathed in the grace and the peace of the gospel that comes to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Lord, I know this was just introducing this letter, but Lord, your word is so profound and so applicable to our lives. We thank you for it. We thank you for the Spirit's work in our hearts. We look forward with joy that we can study this book together in the coming weeks and, and Lord, learn about your coming back for us. Father, I pray right now for any who are here in this building or maybe listening to the live stream or maybe listening to this recording after it was even done, Lord. We, we pray, Lord, if, if they don't know you and they haven't put their faith or trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, they haven't turned from their sin to the Savior. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's something that God does in our heart and in our mind and our being. Lord, I pray that they would look to Christ, that they would look to Christ and be saved because that's the only one standing. 
That's the only Savior we have. Jesus said very clearly, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He who believes in me will not be condemned. You won't have to pay for your own sin. He will pay the price for you. I pray that you would draw hearts to you, Father, as only you can. And as believers, Lord, I would just pray that this would remind us that there is a lost and dying world out there quickly on their way to hell. And Father, you have given us the answer. You have given us the commission. You have given us the call to go out and to be bold for Christ. Not be afraid of the world or what they might perceive us to be. But Lord, that we would be bold in our witness for Christ. That we would see many come to faith in Christ in 2023. Through this ministry and through the ministry of these people gathered here today. Father, we ask this. We ask you to bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, amen.